Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday, the 21st of April. I'm John Connolly, the Spectator's news editor and your host this week. On this week's show, Boris Johnson faced MPs for the first time since he was fined for breaking the lockdown rules. Keir Starmer said his apology was a joke and a senior Tory called on him to quit, but the Prime Minister has vowed to keep on fighting. I'll be joined by Katie Bowles, James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman to discuss his fate. After failing to take Kiev, Putin has started a renewed offensive in eastern Ukraine. But can he convince ordinary Russians that the war is still on track? Mark Galliotti and Jade McGlynn discuss Putin's narrative war on the home front. In China, the city of Shanghai is still in a gruelling lockdown. Unable to leave their homes and struggling to find food, people in the city are evading China's censors to protest about the conditions. Is there any hope in sight for them? I'll be joined by Cindy Yu. And finally, the next president of France will be decided on Sunday. With just a few days to go, Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen sparred in a debate last night. Who won the clash? I'll speak to Freddie Gray and Jonathan Miller. Before we get going, a quick reminder to subscribe to The Spectator. You can get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12, and we'll even give you a free £20 Amazon voucher too. You can find the offer at spectator.co.uk slash TV offer. And why not subscribe to our YouTube channel too? Click the red subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. Boris Johnson was forced to apologise in the Commons this week after he was fined for breaking his own lockdown rules. The Prime Minister said that it did not occur to him that his dalliance with a birthday cake before a Covid strategy meeting was against the law. But will that wash with the public? Katie Bowles writes this week's cover piece on Boris Johnson's survival strategy and she joins me now with James Forsyth, Spectator's political editor, and Isabel Hardman, our assistant editor. Katie, James and Isabel, thank you for joining us. Now, Katie, you're writing this week's magazine about Boris Johnson fighting on. He's had a tough week again. Uh, How did you do this week? Well, I think if you'd said, you know, two months ago, Boris Johnson is going to receive a fixed penalty notice and then have to face his MPs in the chamber, I think you would have predicted that it would be more tense than it really was uh, when Boris Johnson had to apologise on Tuesday. He had one MP in the form of Mark Harper, the chair of the COVID recovery group, come out and say that he no longer had confidence in Boris Johnson. Um, But that was about it when it came to the Commons response. There were a few, you know, critical questions concerned MPs, but there are more Tory MPs coming out to try and move the conversation to Ukraine. Now, obviously, uh, figures that the government want to come out and ask helpful questions don't tell the full story. But I think even in the reception that followed where the Prime Minister privately uh, spoke to his Tory MPs, uh, there were two hostile questions which point to trouble ahead, but there's still a sense that he is not in imminent danger. And I think for Boris Johnson and his team, this whole way through this, they've been focused on buying him time. And you start to see that the more time that they buy for him, the more chance he has of pulling through this. Now, there's still a few flashpoints. I think more fines are going to be particularly tricky, given the defence they've done of this, this fine is so specific to the event, playing down the seriousness of birthday cakes. So what if there are fines for what could be viewed as more serious um, rule breaches? And also there's the Sue Gray report and there's local elections. But I think those around Boris Johnson are more optimistic than they have been for some time. Mm. James, um, as well as Partygate, you mentioned in your column this week that Boris Johnson has got a lot of kind of difficulties and trials ahead of him. Can you give us a sort of rundown of what those might be? 
I think the worry for the Tories is that it's hard to see where political relief is coming from for them. That There are obviously all the issues to do with Partygate that, that, that Casey just mentioned. Then there is the fact that the Tories are behind in the polls, even before the next few months, which are going to see you know household budgets really squeezed by rising prices. Um, just this month, national insurance has gone up. Uh, and then you've got a whole series of, I think, what are going to be quite contentious public sector pay settlements coming. And so it's hard to see where the good news is. And and you add into the fact, the fact that now the IMF thinks that the UK economy will only grow by, by a mere 1.2% next year. And you see it's going to be very, very hard sledding for the Tories uh, because they're, 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 people are going to be feeling worse off and the government uh, is going to really struggle against that environment. I think, even, I think one of the problems for the government is that often in British politics, governments come in, do the difficult stuff straight away, become a bit unpopular. And then if things work out for them, they reap the benefits of that before polling day. But partly because the the, the Tory offer in 2019 uh, was, was principally about Brexit rather than anything else, and also because of COVID, the government hasn't done that. So it is only now turning to do some of the unpopular things, for example, raising taxes. Uh, and it's doing that in the middle of the parliament rather than when you should want to do it, which is at the beginning of the parliament. And Isabel, do you think that sort of creates a problem for Boris Johnson for Partygate as well, in that he can't change the conversation. It does, yes. I mean, he's been saying and was saying repeatedly uh, this week at Prime Minister's Questions and in his uh, statement where he tried to very quickly address his Partygate fines before moving on to talking about Ukraine, that he thought it was important for him to be allowed to get on with the job and that his sense of regret at receiving that fine had made him even more uh, determined to uh, deliver for the British people. But but as James says, well, I mean, what is that delivery actually going to look like? Because if you've got voters who've trusted the Conservatives largely because they think they're the best at handling the economy, get to the next election and they've been through you know, a number of years of really struggling uh, to balance their household budgets, feeling like their money is just disappearing much more quickly because their energy bills have been going up, their pay hasn't been keeping pace. What will they have to thank the Conservatives for that will enable them to forgive the Prime Minister for his personal failings? Um, And even even if things were going swimmingly with the economy, the Partygate investigation isn't over yet. And uh, the votes that we've been having um, and debates that we've been having this week um, on uh, referring Boris Johnson uh, have been taking place before the police investigation is over, um, before the Sue Gray report comes out. Um, And so there there are many, many more points uh, where the Prime Minister could where the Prime Minister could come under much greater pressure than he has over this particular fine that he received. Mm. And Katie, it's been sort of said that Boris Johnson has been helped by the fact that there's no real viable candidate to replace him at this stage. How much do you think that sort of still stands with the Tory party? And is that going to carry on being the case, do you think? Or are other challenges going to emerge at some point? Well, I think it is a big factor in this. As Isabel just um, explained, there's, there's not much really to point to at the moment in terms of things to say that voters should be positive about when you look at the cost of living crisis. Um, but ultimately, Tory MPs are looking around and they're seeing the political pain that Partygate is still causing them, which they do blame Boris Johnson for. But the fact they're just not sure what replacement is better uh, means that 
many are just going to stay with him, perhaps begrudgingly, um, but for the time being until something comes along. And I think the fact that Rishi Sunak's popularity has plummeted and MPs are questioning how committed he is to politics means that he is not currently seen as someone who is ready for an immediate contest. I don't think colleagues have written him off completely in the coming years, but I think a contest this year, as one former minister said to me, it'd be tricky for him, uh, the Chancellor to run in. And then you get to the other candidates. Um, you have figures such as Sajid Javid, who have, has come out and said that he used to have non-dom status after the non-dom riot um, involving Rishi Sunak's wife. And I think um, that means people are like, oh, well, he looked like a safe option. And now actually, you can see how that could have more pressure, more scrutiny if he had a different position. Um, and I think just looking across the various candidates, it is just adding to the sense that almost, you know, better the devil you know. Mm. And James, you mentioned in your piece that Boris Johnson likes to govern as an optimist. Um, do you think that's possible now or do you think he's going to be too slammed by the cost of living crisis to do that and sort of salvage his uh, premiership? No, I think this is one of the things that is difficult. Boris Johnson is inherently a kind of good time politician. You know, he tells everyone that things are getting better all the time. That That is his natural MO. I mean, I think that's why you know, he was never happier than, 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 than being mayor of London during the 2012 Olympics. You're in a very, very different world now. And having dealt with COVID, he's... You know, you are now into a world way where you are telling people constantly, uh, you're having to kind of reassure people that this this squeeze on their living standards isn't going to go on forever. And I think if you strike a very optimistic note right now, it could really jar with people's lived experience. And I think that 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 is a big challenge for him. And I think the other problem for the government is that there is still this fundamental question, which is, you know, what is the government for? now that it has, in inverted commas, got Brexit done. And I think, you know, I think the government have talked about kind of levelling up, has at times been cited as the thing the government is going to do. But, you know, even after levelling up white paper and, and, and all of this, I think there is still a lack of meat on that bone. It is still hard to say levelling up means these three things which the government is currently doing. And I mean, there is also a kind of recognition in the government that, you know, that, that public service reform, which was the kind of meat and drink of British politics for a long time, you know, there is a real lack of, um, again, clarity on what the government wants to do to, to change the way public services work. I mean, that's a particular problem because you've got these long backlogs and problems caused by COVID and the lockdowns, you know, in education in terms of lost learning, kids who've fallen behind, and in the NHS in terms of waiting lists. You know, you look at the fact that you've got 6.1 million people on the NHS waiting list right now. You know, that is a major political problem for any government, let alone a Tory one. And then you look at the fact that, you know, since records started being collected in August 2010, you know, you've got more people waiting 12 hours to be admitted from A&E even at any previous time. And I mean, the state of the, of the health service is, is a potentially really big threat to the government over the coming months. And Isabel, switching to Labour now, I mean, it's one thing them to criticise Partygate and the cost of living, but do you get the sense they're sort of putting forward a coherent vision for the country on their side as well, and, and they're in a sort of decent position at the moment? I think they're in a decent position in terms of being able to prosecute Boris Johnson's failings, uh, generally. But as you say, what they are lacking is any evidence at the moment to give to the electorate 
that they are the, the party to to rush to. And this is partly because of the, the theory that, you know, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And um, it's also partly just because of the, the way in which uh, Keir, Keir Starmer's leadership started in the middle of COVID. And so that crisis has really sort of overtaken the normal processes of party policymaking uh, to, to his Perhaps to his credit, perhaps to his detriment, Ed Miliband was much further along with making policy announcements at this stage. And it may well be that actually that, that didn't help him um, in the end uh, because he still wasn't able to overcome his uh, his major weaknesses in the eyes of voters, particularly on the economy. And it didn't really matter what, you know, Tristram Hunt, his shadow school secretary, thought and that sort of thing. Um, and so when you talk to those around Keir Starmer, their argument is, look, you know, People were doubtful when we started with this um, uh, this sleaze attack and with these attacks on Boris Johnson's character at the start of Keir Starmer's leadership. And now look where we've got to. So just, you know, people need to hang tight a bit longer. But uh, but I think this is this is the year where the nerves, not just from backbenchers, but actually from frontbenchers who want a little bit more to say, uh, will come to the fore. We saw that, I think, this week um, with Priti Patel versus Yvette Cooper, on the government's Rwanda asylum policy, uh, where Cooper made some entirely justifiable criticisms of that policy, which were echoed by uh, Theresa May, who's not exactly famous for being an open borders former Home Secretary herself. Um, But Patel's rejoinder to this and, uh, and all other critics was, well, they haven't come up with any alternatives. Now, that doesn't mean that the Rwanda asylum policy is the thing because no one else has come up with a decent alternative. But I think it does show one of the weaknesses that Labour has is that they do tend to default on pretty much everything to saying that they would introduce a windfall tax, regardless of whether it's particularly relevant to you know immigration or whatever. And Katie, in your piece, you talk a bit about uh, reorganisation in number 10. Um, how happy a ship is it at the sort of centre of government at the moment? And, and how is this affecting sort of Boris Johnson? I think it depends how broad we're talking. I mean, I think there's a tighter team now. So you have Johnson's new inner circle. And I think if you're looking at their inner circle, you know, figures such as Steve Barclay, an MP who's now chief of staff as well. Andrew Griffiths, an MP who's now head of policy. You have Akuta Harry in charge of communication. You have David Kenzini, who's a Crosby ally and has made it, I think, a, a much more political sense. And, and spads definitely feel that when they go to meetings, they get more direction. Um, but then I think you also have some members that, um, who've been with Boris Johnson for a, a longer period who feel as though they're not consulted as much or brought into meetings. But I, I think generally there is a sense that Boris Johnson's shadow whipping operation straight after Partygate and the new team have meant that they have managed to land some announcements. And for example, I mean, people are still debating the Rwanda policy in terms of um, those crossing crossing the channel. But I think inside government, they think that that landed pretty well. And actually, they do view it as a Mm. And James, looking forward to the local elections in a few weeks, um, how important are they for Boris Johnson? And do you think he sort of benefits now from a bit of a a low expectation? (laughs) Well, we're at that expectations management stage of the cycle where uh, the Tories want to suggest that, you know, holding on to one councillor in the entire country would be it would be a would be a good result. You know, it's midterm. It's always difficult for for governments in these situations. I, I do think that these elections matter for, in, in two ways. One is that, you know, Tory MPs don't want to do anything to rock the boat while they've got council candidates in the field. I mean, that's in part why 
the reaction to, to Boris Johnson being fined has been relatively muted. The, 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 the second thing is that Boris Johnson's relationship with his MPs is fundamentally a transactional one. This is not a great ideological project. This is ba- They back him because they think he gives them a better chance of winning than anybody else. If you get a series of election results, whether it be the local election results and the Wakefield by-election, the, gen- the opinion polls nationally, you know, if that sense goes, then I think Boris Johnson is in a much more vulnerable position. Uh, but I think, I, I, so I think that th- this is why the kind of public opinion matters so much to, to, in terms of what, what Tory MPs think of Boris Johnson, because, because they, the reason they backed him in the first place was because they thought he was a winner. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you, Isabel. Putin has had to refocus the war in Ukraine after a disastrous start to the campaign. After initially hoping to take the capital of Kiev and install a puppet government there, the Russian leader has now had to temper his expectations and is now looking to annex the Donbass region in Ukraine's east. Jade McGlynn from the University of Oxford writes in this week's magazine that ordinary Russian support for the war is only going to increase, though, the longer the conflict goes on. Jade joins me now alongside Mark Galliotti, director of Mayak Intelligence. Jade, Mark, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, Jade, to start us off, um, you write in the magazine this week about support for the war in Russia and how it might, might actually be increasing. Can you um, explain a bit why? Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's very difficult. And um, I would first of all like to just say, you know, might should be the operative word. There has to be um, some, some, some caveats around um, how we take uh, even the independent pollsters considering the crackdown on freedom of speech and the introduction of, of several sort of censorship laws. Um, but my main argument in the piece is that in the conditions such as they are um, in Russia at the moment, I can't, I, it seems to me much more likely that support for the war is going to increase, not just simply because of a rally round um, the flag effect, but also because, you know, sanctions, they are hurting people, um, but they're not going to be blamed. Nobody's going to say, oh, we have sanctions because there was this illegal invasion of Ukraine. They're going to say we have sanctions because the West put sanctions on us. And so that's not really going to work against the Kremlin. And then secondly, of course, um, there's the fact that, you know, of course, young the body bags are going to start coming home um, or, 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 or ashes, as, as the case may be. And people are not necessarily going to react to that um, by being angry with the Kremlin. I mean, if you had a son and your son was conscripted into the army um, and he died fighting in Ukraine, you are not going to want to believe that your son died as just sort of a pawn in an evil war or even worse, as an active participant um, in in war crimes, in, in terrible crimes. And then he was sort of just abandoned. Nobody would want to believe that narrative over such a terrible loss. You're going to be much more likely to want to believe this alternative version, especially when this alternative version is pumped every single day pervasively by Russian state media, you know, that your son died as a hero fighting Nazism. So it's going to be very difficult. I think I think the more loss there is, whether or not that's economic, whether or not that's this awful sort of tragic loss of losing one's son, I think the more people are going to be likely to buy into um, to the narrative and to be more resistant to learning the truth of what's happening in Ukraine. Mm. And speaking of that narrative, Mark, the offensive in the Donbass or the war is going to intensify around the Donbass now. Um, most in the West, we sort of see that as a bit of Putin's failure of the fact that he's failed to capture larger parts of the country. How is he selling that domestically at the moment? 
Well, yes. I mean, you've got to realise that given that they're naturally going going to spin the wars as, as effectively as they can, and yes, they, they use state-controlled media to do that, this is being presented as just simply the next logical phase of the so-called special military operation, because, of course, it's not a war. At first, it was about demilitarizing Ukraine. They bring out statistics as to how many tanks have been blown up and such like. And then they say, but this was primarily, it was never, of course, about an invasion of Ukraine, they say. It was always about protecting the Russian speakers and Russian citizens of southeastern Ukraine from the genocide that was going to be visited upon them by this evil neo-Nazi regime. And thus, what is actually, uh, in military terms, essentially a three-quarters defeat, shall we say, this reconsolidation down in the Donbass region and along the northern coast of the Azov Sea, is being spun just simply as, well, this is where the Russian speakers are, this is where we need to be to protect them. I mean, of course, we, we have to also accept the, the limitations of, of, of the sort of capacity of the state to spin everything as it pleases. And I must admit, here I, I would actually slightly push back again against Jade's argument, because in some ways, look, I, I, I go back to the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And if one looks there, when again, you, you have a rather foolish imperialist venture that was clearly being spun by a very, very powerful state propaganda machine. And the thing was that to a degree, people were willing to believe it until they have some kind of independent benchmark of what is actually the truth. And Jade's absolutely right that dead people tell no tales. But the point is, there will be a lot of living people who come back. And particularly what we're now seeing is this is the new spring conscription season. And that means that the conscripts from last spring, many of whom did end up being pressurized into quote unquote, volunteering to go to Ukraine, are now beginning to head home. They really started coming home the weekend that's just passed. And with them, there will be some degree of tales of what's really been going on. And yes, there will be resistance. People don't really want to hear. And people, you know, many of the conscripts will not want to talk about what they saw and what, and what they did. But nonetheless, I think we're, we're beginning, only just now, beginning to actually see a real competition between, shall we say, the reality on the ground and the Kremlin's, on the one hand, very sanitized, and on the other hand, very, very toxic narratives about what's happening in Ukraine. Hmm. Jade, what do you think of that? that um, what do you think of, sort of the limits of the state media there in terms of convincing the population? Mm-hmm. I think there are clear limits to state media. And um, I certainly hope that, that, that Mark is right. Um, I suppose my concern would be that in Afghanistan it took it took quite a long time, and I worry that nowadays everybody sort of tends to expect things to happen quite quickly. I think because of the nature of sort of social social media and the way that all of our societies are. Um, but um, there is a limit to what state media can achieve. However, I think perhaps. F- First of all, I would say that I think actually how effective state media has been um, has been underestimated for quite some time. I think if you use the word propaganda, people tend to dismiss it as, oh, that's something one dimensional. But one of the strengths of um, the way that the um, the Putin government has worked, and, and this isn't just a recent thing, this has been going on since, I think, well, at least 2012, and certainly before then, but in a particularly intense way since 2012, is this co-creation. I mean, they're telling, even now, the state media 
is not simply imposing this view on people. This is a co-creation. This is um, also in part sort of a narrative that there was some appetite for. And certainly um, this argument around the idea that Russia is essentially just refighting World War II. I mean, World War II is something that is... It's a, it's a cherished memory. It's probably the most unifying element, not only of Russia's history, but perhaps the most unifying idea that, that Russia has in terms of an effective way of sort of bringing the nation together. And um, people people have bought into these narratives, um, not just for the war in Ukraine, you know, long before them and in many different ways. That doesn't mean essentially that they completely agree with it in the same way that the Kremlin presents it. Um, you know, there may even be some cynicism. Some of the people who support the war are quite can be quite cynical towards the Kremlin and some of the more nationalist types. Um, so it's not as simple as, you know, people are zombies or people are um, uh, uh, sort of brainwashed. But what it is, is that the Kremlin is very good at sort of creating this mosaic of narratives um, to sort of inscribe that everybody can almost, not everybody, but almost everybody can maybe find one bit that they like or inscribe themselves into. And Mark, um, Jade mentions in her piece about these sort of state-managed Russian events in support of the war, for example, Putin in the huge football stadium talking to the crowds where a lot have been paid for, for example. Do you think this is sort of a, a sign that the Kremlin is feeling a bit vulnerable, maybe, and is perhaps a bit more wary of, sort of spontaneous support or distaste for the war? Well, yes, I mean, you have to realise that, you know, when it comes down to it, this is a regime of old men who went through the collapse of the Soviet Union and in Putin's case, also the collapse of East Germany before that who have, I think, an intrinsic mistrust of what they would think of as the mob, and therefore time and time again precisely want to try and get out ahead as they see it and, and exactly create this sort of astroturfed fake notion of a groundswell of opinion. Because the point is that these events, by squeezing out the uh, scope for any alternative perspectives, what they try and do is, is create the sense that there is a public groundswell. And that means that firstly, a lot of people feel, well, if everyone else is thinking that, then so should I. Or secondly, even if they are actually personally feeling critical of the regime, if they suddenly think, well, everyone else believes this, it encourages them to keep quiet, to keep a low profile. This is an era in which in some ways we're seeing the weaponization of paranoia as a sort of key element of of control of, of the population. But I think there's also one other dimension I'd throw in, which is I think in some ways these kind of events are also thrown for basically an audience of one person, and that is Putin himself. That this is actually an apparatus, a collection of officials who want to please the boss. And part of that is precisely by by giving him these 75% fake maybe, but anyway... These are sort of apparent expressions of public support and people shouting and people chanting and people waving the right flags makes him feel happy. And, you know, this is this is one of the almost dangerous elements, I would say, of the current situation is that it creates this cocoon in which Putin may well be unaware of the very real complexities of how Russians are looking at their current situation. And he just thinks, well, everyone's behind me. So it's a mix. It's in part and to a large extent. It's about exactly managing public opinion and trying to create this sense of a groundswell of support, just as we see with the sort of now infamous Z symbol, um, that although entirely meaningless, it's not even a letter in the Russian alphabet like that. But nonetheless, you know, th- this symbol is now sort of in- incorporated all other places as you know, officials realize that this is, this is what they should be getting behind. And ordinary people think, well, this is how I show I'm a patriot. So there is the creation of a national mood. 
but it's also about pleasing the boss. Mm. And Jade, you write a bit in your piece about the Russian state sort of instrumentalizing trauma and um, sort of reminding Russians of the worst eras of, of their history. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that, please, and explain it? Mm-hmm. So in some ways it picks up quite nicely on a point that, that um, Mark was making there about um, paranoia, but there's been a sort of very deliberate, and again, this is not something that that started sort of on February 22nd or after February 24th um, of this year, but there's been an attempt to, I suppose, um, that I, I don't think we can see as anything but probably quite deliberate, um, to use rhetoric that and language and sort of certain set phrases that um, deliberately hark back to the Stalinist era in certain speeches, um, particularly sort of some of the speeches that Putin gave um, in early March. And the way I personally would interpret that is um, as trying to sort of stir up um, memories, again, this discouragement of voicing alternative opinions, and so on. But there's also, you know, many other sort of traumatic uh, memories um, that, um, that, that sort of, uh, not just Putin, but, but the media as well can instrumentalise. And some of the most obvious ones um, that have been used before are the memory of the sort of chaos and the anarchy of the 1990s, um, when the, essentially, which in the Kremlin narrative is because of total state collapse and having a weak state. I mean, most of the uses um, of history that you see in Russia are about saying it's really important to have a strong state. It's really, really important you know that there aren't any protests and that the state remains really strong um and so the 90s is a very useful one i mean in, to a certain extent we haven't been seeing that one as much as um we did in 2014 for obvious reasons which is because of the state of the economy um is such that it's very easy um, to make comparisons with the 1990s that perhaps do not leave um putin and and um and his government in, in such a in such a positive light but there is this um i think we're all familiar with the way that um, or, or most of us are familiar with the way that, that Putin uses um, the memory of World War Two and the, the triumph of that and the heroism. But there's also, you know, a less explored element of how he uses the the tragedy um, or what's seen as tragedies and, and troubles and, and traumas to to encourage um, certain certain behaviours. Just to and piggyback course, on that, not, I, mean, I agree very oh, much. Yeah, of course. And I think one can link that back to a, a very a very useful point that Jade made right at the beginning which is that if we look at the impact of the sanctions at the moment, which in part seems to have been intended by the West precisely to bring pressure to bear on Russians to make them feel that they need to protest or whatever against the regime, that is absolutely not what is happening. On the whole, even Russians who are not fans of Putin, even Russians who are relatively West-looking and know the situation, when they go to the chemists and they can't find the medicines that their kid needs, or when they go to the supermarket and they can't find food, they are not blaming Putin. They are blaming the West. They are blaming us because we managed to launch a sanctions regime, which, while absolutely hitting the sort of apex of the state, is also very much hitting the base of, of society. And I think in some ways this actually plays to Putin's use of national trauma and national isolation as an instrument of, of, of welding support. The idea is, even for those people who don't like Putin, even for those people who actually may well feel that Russia ought not to be in Ukraine, there is that sense that you are now in an existential struggle for for Russia's independence and sovereignty, and a nasty West is penalising you for that, and therefore, like it or not, you have to, again, rally around that flag.
Mm. I'm picking up on that point, Jade. Um, we're obviously not entirely passive observers in this. Is, is there anything the West could be doing more to win Russians over? And, and do you think some of the way we've sort of uh, treated Russia might have, have led on to this? For example, this week, Wimbledon has banned all Russian athletes, for example. Do you think we should be doing things differently? I mean, there's two quite big questions there. Um, just to start with, um, I think that, I mean, I completely agree with Mark that, of course, sanctions are, 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 being, um, are going to be blamed on the West. And it's not so much that I think sanctions like that shouldn't have been applied, but I, I, was, I thought it was a bit of a shame to apply sanctions that um, affected the entirety of society, perhaps before we had exhausted all of the sanctions possibilities for targeting the elites. Um, I'll put it that way. Um, I do think that a lot of mistakes are being made. I think that it's not a good idea for us to, um, firstly, for us to sit in judgment from, well, for me, um, and I believe for Mark as well, from the relative safe, from, well, from the absolute safety of London. It's not really for me to sit in, uh, to sit here and sit in judgment of people, um, if you know, for not protesting or for protesting, um, because that's not a risk that I have to take um so I would just say put that kind of element in as well because I think it's quite tiresome sometimes to hear westerners you know really sort of having a go at Russians um for not protesting but um yeah I think that we should be trying to encourage those people um who want to leave who who do want to leave particularly the sort of the young and the brightest I think we should be making it easier for them to come and to travel and to leave Russia because firstly that's a that's a brain drain which will then weaken the the Russian economy further if that's what they're trying to do if Russia wants to have this kind of autarkic or semi-autarkic semi sort of um dependent on China um system they're going to need quite clever people to you know replace all do all of the import substitution that they that they now need so we should be encouraging those people to come over to come over here I mean if you follow that logic but I think also as well it's just important in terms of framing I very much do think that probably a majority of Russians support this war um However, I'm not sure how, just thinking from a Western point of view, I'm not sure how helpful it is to frame it in that way. If we think back to the Soviet Union, it was a very useful way of saying, um, there was a tendency to say, well, you know, this is the Soviet regime that's kind of been imposed and there was this difference, this idea that it had been imposed on Russia. Of Clearly, we can't go quite to that extent, but I think it's important that we make sure people know that there's a door open, that there's sort of a, a friendly hand being held out because at some point, um, as completely over optimistic as this seems um you know there might be an opportunity Putin might even die he might even be mortal and there might be an opportunity to encourage a slightly different regime it'd be very important I think that Putin is externalizable that that there isn't that there is this other idea of Russia and that the West has made it clear that they don't sort of say well everybody's Putin Mm -hmm. thank you Jade and thank you Mark Shanghai is about to enter the fourth week of lockdown, with many residents in the city of 25 million still being told that they can't leave their homes to buy food. Cindy Yu writes in this week's magazine that the people in Shanghai have taken to social media to complain and are using ever more subtle techniques to bypass Beijing's censors. Cindy joins me now. Hi, Cindy. Thank you for joining us. Um, You write in the magazine about Shanghai's lockdown this week. Can you tell us a bit about the situation there for those who haven't been following the story as closely? Yeah, of course. So Shanghai, like many other cities around China, has been dealing with an Omicron outbreak. The difference with Shanghai is that it's actually one of the leading cities in China 
which has been advocating for living with COVID um, or as much as possible living with COVID strategy. So it actually didn't lock down when it found its first cases earlier this year, which meant that by the time that it did lock down, the authorities didn't actually know how many cases there were in the city. A lot of these were asymptomatic anyway. So it spent weeks basically telling people, 25 million residents basically, whenever we're not going to lock down, don't worry. Then it did lock down at the end of March and it split the city into two uh, in order to do kind of one week fire break, uh, all the while saying this is how long it's going to be. And then it extended that indefinitely and it's currently still an indefinite extension of lockdown. But this whole messy nature of the lockdown has meant that a lot of people just weren't prepared for the siege that then uh, they're living under now. Um, and Bizarrely, you know, Chinese lockdowns these days mean that you can't even leave your flat uh, in the tightest areas. You can't even leave your flat in order to get uh, grocery shopping or anything like that. So it's created this logistical challenge on top of the public health challenge because the government is having to arrange rations. Uh, online shopping is severely oversubscribed. And then there's just the sheer number of infections that are happening in Shanghai at the moment. At its peak, was about 27,000 in a day meant that because everyone had to be centrally quarantined under China's zero COVID strategy, um, that actually there was you know, just not enough people to transport uh, into these quarantine centers. There were not enough quarantine centers themselves in order to make this happen. So the government is basically dealing with a lot of different problems all at once at the moment. Mm. And you mentioned there there's some quite draconian measures. Are they having any impact at all on the virus itself? Are numbers reducing? Is it, is it worth the, the sort of the measures? Yeah, the numbers are reducing. So at its peak uh, last week, it was about 27,000 a day. But right now, it's about it's a bit under 20,000. So it, it, we do see it coming down. Um, but, you know, the government is trying to get zero COVID uh, to happen by the end of April uh, at the latest. And that's just not looking very good at all. You know, it's a very ambitious target. Um, so the numbers are coming down. But there are also questions about how effective these measures are. Because under a zero COVID policy, you're meant to kind of quarantine anyone who might infect, right? But at the moment, what we're hearing are these stories about quarantine centers potentially having cross infections where people who are testing negative are put with people who are testing positive, creating these cross infections, all in these mass testings that have become the norm in China, um, where people are just kind of squished up against each other. And there are social media videos showing this. And some people have started refusing to go downstairs to do these tests because they're worried about getting infected during the testing process. Um, so there are all these questions where, you know, just the sheer scale of infections is something that China hasn't seen before. Uh, and, and they're struggling under it. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit about these sort of complaints we're seeing on social media and the kind of things people are sharing about their treatment in Shanghai? Yeah, so that's the point that I pick out most on my piece, which is just this incredible moment on social media where so much of this chaos is playing out online so that people like me sitting in London, uh, Chinese people who are concerned elsewhere, can see everything that's happening. And obviously not every single person in Shanghai will be having a similarly terrible experience. There are those who are very well resourced, well to do, who can get enough food and who can get enough medicines and who do have the contacts. So I'm not saying that every single person of those 25 million in Shanghai are struggling, but a lot of people are. And they're going to social media, posting phone, record, uh, phone call recordings of themselves, talking to the authorities, posting videos of pot potentially arguments with the police, uh, similar things like that, uh, bad treatment at quarantine centers. They're posting blogs about um, people running out of food, people running out of medicine. And all of this is just providing too much 
for China's census to, 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 to deal with. So at the, during the time that we're having these health workers dealing with the Omicron outbreak, we're also having China's infamous censors dealing with a social media outbreak. And they're struggling. They're really struggling because the volume of grievances is just something that... Um, you know, they, they can't keep up with. And there was this really intriguing moment on the April uh, on April 13th, between the hours of midnight and 4am, where it just seemed like the census kind of clocked off for a bit. And people were complaining about chi- the Chinese government, but under the guise of criticising America. So maybe that's why it didn't trigger any warnings with the AI that's used to scour social media. Um, but, you know, there was just this hours of just completely unfiltered deluge of criticism. And um, it was a really heartening moment to see because, and I quote, you know, this one post in my article saying, this is the real pe- voice of the people commemorate tonight. At least I know that we are still awake. Though we travel in the darkness alone, there will be a day when we have the force of a prairie fire. Because people on social media don't normally see this kind of negative news. But, you know, it's, they're finding it heartening that the censors are struggling to keep up because they can see that there are other people struggling. Um, and also a point that I'm making in my piece is that the authorities also respond to social media. So if you make a complaint on social media, even if it's deleted, someone somewhere has seen that. And we have seen evidence of the government basically backtracking or U-turning because of a social media backlash. So for example, one of the early things that the Shanghai authorities did was splitting parents and children uh, when they were going into quarantine. So if the child was testing positive and the parent didn't, the child would have to go into quarantine by themselves, even if it was you know, a baby or a toddler. And that caused a massive internet backlash. And Shanghai authorities have now backtracked on that. So people know the power of social media. It's not just cathartic, it's also effective for essentially people who don't get to go to the polling stations. Um, And the authorities are actually afraid of being humiliated or causing instability that start from social media. And so they try to, you know, placate people and they try to resolve these issues once they get go viral. Mm. And do you get the sense that this is triggering outrage on a sort of more national scale outside of Shanghai? It's really hard to know, but for sure not every single critic online at the moment are people in Shanghai. There will be people who are you know, complaining about uh, the inhumanity of the lockdown, not necessarily being lockdown sceptic completely, but just the extent and the inhuman nature that you know, some of these policies, for example, splitting parents and children have been carried out are. Um, but there are also people who are taking this as a sign of you know, the arbitrary power of the Chinese government and criticizing that. And those are not necessarily people in Shanghai, but people who are watching Shanghai. And you know, I think it's interesting writing about reporting on this lockdown throughout uh, the last few weeks. There are a lot of schadenfreude, I think, from Western uh, readers and observers. You know, haha, China's now dealing with its own pandemic. But actually, for Chinese people and you know, for people, I'm Chinese as well, it's actually very concerning. You know, it's a doom scrolling moment where you can't tear yourself away from social media because there are so many concerning stories. It's not funny at all, actually. Um, And so a lot of people in China are concerned that A, this is happening in a city, you know, the the most economically developed city in in, in the country, and that B, it might happen to them later on as well if something similar uh, a similar outbreak happens. So it's it's really concerning. And I think people, some people do draw political conclusions from that. I don't think this is going to go anywhere, though, before you know, people wonder if this is going to be the downfall of Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party. I don't think it will go that far, because once they get this under control, Chinese people have, do, can tend to have short public memories and they don't then carry that through. Mm. And you mentioned in your piece as well about people trying to get around the censorship regime. Can you give, tell us a bit about the, sort of the methods they're using to sort of escape the, 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 sort of the hand of the censor? 
Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I mean, just to explain how censorship on Chinese in- internet works, it's actually the social media companies themselves who carry out the censorship. They get briefed by the central government, uh, probably weekly, on what are the banned topics and keywords. Then it's the social media platforms themselves who employ either in-house teams or external contractors, professional censors, if you will, um, in order to carry out um, these orders to may actually implement them on a granular level. So that can be uh, manual, millennials, for example, who are apolitical themselves, but actually know far more about the darkest moments of Chinese history than your average Chinese person because they have to be able to censor that. They're helped also by artificial intelligence, bots essentially who that search for keywords, also scour pictures for embedded text in case screenshots are a way to get around that. Um, and so people get around it by avoiding keywords. So instead of um, sensitive words like zhenfu, which means government in China, people just write ZF because that's the first uh, letter of each of those syllables uh, to refer to the government. And that seems to get around that. Uh, people post pictures upside down in order to get past the AI um, an- an- analysis of pictures. Uh, and there are also memes which refer to things uh, to people in the know. So for a time, um, a picture of an empty chair was banned on Chinese social media when the census caught up because users had started using an empty chair to signal uh, to signify the uh, late dis- dissident Liu Xiaobo who received his Nobel Peace Prize in absentia, so the empty chair. Um, and so all of these ways people have of getting around things and then also reposting. So you've got this fascinating environment where the Chinese people know that they are being censored, they talk about the censors openly, and they also talk about the methods of getting around the censors openly. So I read one blog um, complaining about uh, the poster's neighbour who had died of an asthma attack because he wasn't seen at hospital fast enough because of the lockdown. And at the end, he wrote something like, please, if you see this, do not tag the government in it, do not tag any state media in it, but copy and paste, repost, because they can take one thing down, but they can't take all of us down. So, you know, it's, it's this dystopian world where people know that they are being censored and they're trying to find all of these ways around it and a lot of the time succeeding. So it's a cat and mouse game, basically. Hmm. And you mentioned about lockdowns potentially spreading to other cities. Do you think the criticism the government is receiving now is making that less likely? Or do you think they're going to plough on regardless with sort of the zero COVID strategy if it does spread elsewhere? So I think even zero COVID has degrees um, because China has done zero COVID from the beginning, from January 2020. But what is bizarre about the Shanghai lockdown is just how severe it is. Because not only are people locked down and... um, you know, people contact trace and centrally quarantined, something new has happened in Chinese lockdowns, which is that those in the strictest tier in lockdown in Shanghai can't leave their flats even to buy food. And I think that has caused a lot of the problems for people locked down because at the beginning, you know, you could get these permits for household, you could go out to do family shopping every other day. I'm not sure why they have stopped doing that. And the city of Xi'an over Christmas, when it was locking down because of Omicron, was the first to pioneer this strategy. Um, and that was the first we saw government rations being sent out. But now Shanghai has copied it. But it's not the case for lockdowns across China. So I don't understand why it is that the Shanghai authorities themselves have gone for this extreme version. And they have been criticised and compared to other cities like Shenzhen, which have had much more humane lockdowns. You know, pets have been able to be quarantined with their owners, children with their parents. It's confusing, it's baffling actually, why Shanghai has gone for this um, extremism. And uh, there's conspiracy theories in China at the moment that because Shanghai was one of these cities advocating for living with lockdown, uh, living with COVID from the beginning, that there is this 
notion that they need to be made to suffer because they refused the lockdown. Now the people, now they need to be shown that that method was wrong and so they need to be suffering more. That is a conspiracy theory, but that is what a lot of Chinese people are wondering. Well, how did it come to this for you know the, the best city in China? Um, so it is confusing. Mm. And finally, before you go, Cindy, um, where do you think Shanghai goes from now? You mentioned uh, at the beginning there that this lockdown was meant to last for a week. Do you think we've got me- they've got many more weeks ahead of lockdown, or do you think it's coming to an end? So last week, um, the city introduced this tier system where the city was in, uh, split into three tiers. In the strictest tier, people can't leave their flats even still for food. Uh, then there's a middle tier where you can you know leave your front door and just walk around in your residential compound. Uh, and then the most relaxed tier is where you can go to other relaxed tier neighborhoods. Um, so. That's relative freedom, I think, for the Shanghainese at the moment. Uh, but it does show that the authorities are seeing that they've gone through the emergency level of the lockdown now. Um, the government has given them a target of actually meeting this week zero COVID. And the reason uh, they can kind of come up with a goal like that, even though they've got 20,000 daily infections, is because they actually count asymptomatic and symptomatic infections differently. So in the official numbers, they only count a symptomatic infection as the actual infection. Of course, in Western reporting, we add on the asymptomatic infection because that is you know, more reliable. So it could be that by the end of this week, symptomatic infections are, have gone to zero, even if asymptomatic ones are still uh, around. But Shanghai is hoping to shake this off by the end of the month, really. Um, And I just don't know if it will manage to do that. Um, The government certainly is throwing all sorts of resources at it. Um, And there was talk before the Shanghai party secretary getting a promotion before all of this happened. But I just don't think that's going to happen now. Brilliant. Thank you, Cindy. And finally, with the second round of the French election on Sunday, Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen faced off last night in a televised debate. Who won the clash and what's going to happen on Sunday? I'm joined now by Freddie Gray, the Spectator's deputy editor and Spectator contributor Jonathan Miller. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Freddie, for joining us. Now, uh, Macron and Le Pen faced off in the the TV debates last night. Um, Jonathan, how do you think they did? Well, I think uh, most people scored Macron the technical winner. I sort of scored Marion the winner on the more emotional level of speaking a language that connected with people. I think the expectations of Mary, uh, of Marine Le Pen were quite uh, low because in 2017, five years ago, the first time we had this rodeo, she uh, was really crushed by Macron. She was not a master of the detail, he was. This time around, he sparred with her, he jabbed uh, at her, but he never really landed a crushing blow and her mere survival kind of makes her a winner. So I would say narrowly it was a, a victory for Marine Le Pen simply because she didn't lose or wasn't humiliated. Mm. And Freddie, how, what did you make of the debate? How do you think uh, Le Pen did? Was it sort of enough to survive or keep her in the running? I think there, were, there, there was no winner, really. And I think uh, for a TV debate to really matter, um, they often actually don't. I think for a TV debate to matter, there has to be a disaster for someone. Uh, there was a disaster for Le Pen in 2017. There wasn't really a disaster last night. Macron, I think Jonathan may be right that Le Pen sort of just about got the better of him, but he didn't have a major bulls up, and that's all he needed to avoid. I do think, though, I want to do a shout out to the sign language translator for Macron, who managed to convey his incredible arrogance uh, through his hands. Uh, that was the, the star of the evening for me.
I mean, Jonathan, I think Macron was trying to sort of steer away from the arrogant line. Do you think he managed it at all this time or uh, he came across as a bit disingenuous? Well, he is a very narcissistic personality who is uh, always convinced of his own intellectual superiority and uh, grasp of the uh, the actuality. Um, so uh, I think he probably was told by his team to try to tone that down. He has great difficulty in doing so, however. They, I mean, you cannot... Uh, a leopard cannot change its spots, and he was quite patronizing, quite lectury uh, at times. Um, Marine isn't a great spontaneous uh, debater. Um, she's uh, not mentally very agile. She's not a plonk. She, she mastered her brief. Um, her responses to him were tempered. She was disciplined throughout. Um, if he looked, you know, at times like, you know, the rat in heat, she was kind of the uh, the nation's grandma, I suppose. Um, and, you know, somewhat more reassuring. Actually, the dirty secret is, uh, it's, it's a choice that appeals, doesn't really appeal to the great uh, mass of French people who voted for neither one of them overwhelmingly in the first tour. This is what they're left with. So the decision is, is going to be, you know, who is the least bad among them. And my guess is probably this debate will leave Macron in his leading position, um, much less leading than last time when he, you know, won 66 to 34% of the vote. Um, but he doesn't need that. He, you know, 55 to 45 will do. But, you know, even when he's won, it, it does nothing really to resolve the uh, the fundamental problems that afflict France, which are, if anything, are getting worse with the cost of living crisis, you know, and war on you know European soil, and uh, French cities in turmoil, and uh, you know a, re a potential refugee crisis, a potential cost of living crisis, uh, a potential inflation crisis. Uh, an international relations crisis, all simultaneously converging, uh, like a you know, and and so to win this election is not you know that you're going to have a quiet life. Mm. I mean, Freddie, um, you know, after, since the first round, it's been kind of said that Marine Le Pen needs to pick up voters either from the left or who are a bit more apathetic this time. Do you get any sense that she's managing to do that at all, or is it kind of has she kind of hit her plateau now, maybe? Well, she, she does seem to be performing better in the polls with women and young people. Uh, but the, the latest polls suggest she has sort of uh, reached a, a plateau of some sort. Um, and I just, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that she's going to be able to win on Sunday. Of course, I, stand, I could well be way off because there could be a strong shy Le Pen vote because of Macron's immense unpopularity. But set against that, I think you have to do... There is a cost of living crisis, which Le Pen has spoken about quite a lot, but Macron talks quite a good game on the economy still, and it's sort of amazing that he gets away with it, but he does. And his grasp of the detail last night in the debate showed that he's, he's much more competent at sort of presenting the idea of someone who's in charge. I don't think there's... Uh, I think Freddie's, you know, Freddie's made the point um, that, uh, that a debate in which nobody is a decisive winner is not a debate that is uh, likely to be decisive. 
in terms of the uh, the election that follows. And uh, this this time too, um, we saw no particularly decisive winner. Uh, we saw Macron didn't fail to put his uh, opponent on the floor. Uh, she uh, she she talked through his uh, his jabbings, his probings. Um, and so I don't think the final election result will be particularly affected. I don't think at the moment I detect huge momentum for her. There's not a lot of time left. Um, it's uh, it's it's the, the the afternoon after the night before here in France, so it's the afternoon, uh, and and the polls open at 8 a.m. on Sunday. Uh, I think uh, the, the the result is baked in. Most of the people I talk to uh, expect Macron to win. Uh, very, very few of the people I talked to were happy uh, with that. Mm. And um, what? And Freddie, what do you think Macron's strategy is at this stage now? Is it just to hold the line, or do you think he's got a sort of bit of a temptation to try and move to the right slightly to counteract Le Pen? Well, he can't stop himself from uh, ostentation. So I think there'll probably be another ridiculous uh, photo shoot that will go viral. Uh, he seems to almost be doing those deliberately. Uh, but and I think he wants to convey immense confidence. Uh, and he's pretty good at doing that. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you dislike him as a person. He is a pretty brilliant campaigner. I think we just have to admit that that's true. Well, I don't think Macron's been a brilliant campaigner. I, I, I part company with, with um, that. Uh, I think he's avoided campaigning. He thought that, he, that the momentum of his interventions with uh, Putin and the Ukraine crisis might uh, put him in this kind of Olympian position as a sort of great statesman at a time of of crisis would carry him through. And then when he has actually confronted uh, voters face to face, you know, it's been a, a kind of redux of the last five years. He's not really comfortable with people. He kind of says inappropriate things. His body language is 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 is, uh, is, is sort of defensive. He he's much more comfortable in a kind of professorial, uh, imperious role preaching at people. So I think his campaign has been, you know, quite uh, quite ordinary so far. I think in, in, even on the level of social media, you know, Marine has shown more agility, uh, uh, a crispness that, uh, that the Macron messaging has kind of lacked. So I don't rate his campaign. I think uh, his calculation, though, is that he's in a, uh, a position where he, he simply can't lose. I think I agree, I agree with that, John. I think though there is an extent to which uh, French voters aren't really put off by arrogance, perhaps, in the way we might suspect, or even British or even American voters aren't necessarily uh, put off by arrogance. I think JFK said, you know, the presidency is not a normal ambition. Uh, people expect uh, global statesmen to be preposterously vain. Brilliant. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you, Freddie. That's it for this week. Once again, don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks for watching and do join us again next week.